from Los Angeles, California, the entertainment capital of the world. It's the 80s Movie Podcast. I'm your host, Edward Havens. Thank you for listening today. On this episode, we're going to continue our mini-series on the movies released by Miramax Films in the 1980s. And in case you did not listen to part one yet, let me reiterate that the focus here will be on the films and the creatives, not the Weinsteins. The Weinsteins did not have a hand in the production of any of the movies Miramax released in the 1980s, and that Miramax logo and the names associated with it should not stop anyone from enjoying some very well-made movies because they now have the unfortunate association with two spineless chucklenuts whose proclivities would not be known by the outside world for decades to come. Well, there is one movie this episode that we must talk about the Weinsteins as creatives, but when we're talking about that film, quote-unquote creatives, is a derisive pejorative. We ended our previous episode at the end of 1983. Miramax had one minor hit film in The Secret Policeman's Other Ball, thanks in large part to the film's association with the members of the still-beloved Monty Python comedy troupe, who hadn't released any material since The Life of Brian in 1979. 1984 would be the start of year five for the company, and they were still in need of something to make their name. Being a truly independent film company, 1984 was not easy. There were fewer than 20,000 movie screens in the entire country back then, compared to nearly 40,000 today. National video store chains like Blockbuster did not exist, and the few cable channels that did exist played mostly Hollywood films. There was no social media for images and clips to go viral. For comparison's sake, in A24's first five years, from its founding in August of 2012 to July 2017, the company would have a number of hit films, including The Bling Ring, The Lobster, Spring Breakers, and The Witch, release movies from some of indie cinema's most respected names like Andrea Arnold and Robert Eggers, Adam McGoyan, Daniel Kwan and Daniel Scheinert, Lynn Shelton, Trey Edward Schultz, Gus Van Zandt, and Denis Villeneuve and released several Academy Award-winning movies, including the Amy Winehouse documentary, Amy, Alex Gardelin's Ex Machina, Lenny Abramson's Room, and Barry Jenkins's Moonlight, which would upset frontrunner La La Land for the Best Picture Award of 2016. But instead of leaning into the American independent cinema the way that Cinecom and Island were doing with the likes of Jonathan Demme and John Sayles in the early 80s, Miramax would dip their toes further into the world of international cinema. Their first release for 1984 would be Rui Guerra's Erendira. The screenplay by Nobel Prize winner Gabriel Garcia Marquez was based on his 1972 novella The Incredible and Sad Tale of Innocent Erendira and Her Heartless Grandmother, which itself was based off a screenplay Marquez had written in the early 1960s, which... When he couldn't get it made at the time, he would reduce down to a page and a half for a sequence in his 1967 magnum opus, 100 Years of Solitude. Between the early 1960s and the early 1980s, Marquez would lose the original draft of Erendira and would write a new script based off what he remembered writing 20 years earlier. In the story, a young woman named Erendira lives in a near mansion situated in an otherwise empty desert with her grandmother who has collected a number of paper flowers and assorted tchotchkes over the years. One night, Erendira forgets to put out some candles used to illuminate the house, and the house and all of its contents burn to the ground. With everything lost, Erendira's grandmother forces her into a life of prostitution. 
the young woman quickly becomes the courtesan of choice in the region. With every new journey, an ever-growing caravan starts to follow them until it becomes, for all intents and purpose, a carnival with food vendors, snake charmers, musicians, and games of chance. Marquez's writing style, known as magic realism, was very cinematic on the page, and it's little wonder that many of his stories have been made into movies and television miniseries around the globe for more than half a century. Yet no movie came as close to capturing that Marquezian prose quite the way Guerra did with Erendira. Featuring Greek goddess Irina Papas as a grandmother, Brazilian actress Claudia Ohana, who happened to be married to Guerra at the time as the titular character, and former Bond villain Michel Lonsdale in a small but important role as a senator who tries to help Erendira get out of her life as a slave. And the movie would be Mexico's entry into the 1983 Academy Award race for Best Foreign Language Film. After acquiring the film for American distribution, Miramax would score a coup by getting the film accepted to that year's New York Film Festival. Alongside such films as Robert Altman's Streamers, Jean-Luc Godard's Passion, Lawrence Kasdan's The Big Chill, Francis Ford Coppola's Rumblefish, and Andre Vida's Danton. But despite some stellar reviews from many of New York City's film critics, Erendira would not get nominated for Best Foreign Language Film, and Miramax would wait until April 27, 1984 to open the film at the Lincoln Plaza Cinemas, one of the most important theaters at the time in New York City, to launch a foreign film. A quarter-page ad in the New York Times included quotes from The Village Voice, New York Magazine, Vincent Canby of The New York Times, and Roger Ebert, and the movie would gross an impressive $25,500 in its first three days. Word of mouth in the city would be strong, with its second weekend gross actually increasing nearly 20% to $30,500. Its third weekend would fall slightly, but with $27,000 in the till, would still be better than its first weekend. It wouldn't be until week five that Aaron Dura would expand to Los Angeles and Chicago, where it would continue to gross nearly $20,000 per screen for several more weeks. The film would continue to play across the nation for more than half a year, and despite never making more than four prints of the film at any time, Aaron Dura would gross more than $600,000 in America, one of the best non-English language releases for all of 1984. And in their quickest turnaround from one film to another to date, Miramax would release Claude Lelouch's Edith and Marcel not five weeks after Aaron Dira. If you're not familiar with the name Claude Chabral, I would highly suggest becoming so. Chabral was a part of the French New Wave filmmakers, alongside Jean-Luc Godard, Jacques Rivet, Eric Romer, and Francois Truffaut, who came up as film critics for the influential film magazine Cahier du Cinéma in the 1950s, who would go on to change the direction of French cinema and how film fans appreciated films and filmmakers through the concept of the auteur theory, although the theory itself would be given that name by American film critic Andrew Sarris in 1962. Of these five critics-turned-filmmakers, Chabral would be considered the most prolific and commercial. Chabral would be the first of them to make a movie, Le Beau Serge, and between 1957 and his death in 2010, he would make 58 movies. That's more than one new movie every year on average, not counting shorts and television projects that he also made on the side. American audiences knew him best at the time for his 1966 global hit, 
a man and a woman, which would sell more than $14 million in tickets in the United States, and be one of the few foreign language films at the time to earn Academy Award nominations outside of the best foreign language film race. Lead actress Anouk Ami would get a nod for lead actress, and Chabral would earn two nominations on the film for Best Director, which he would lose to Fred Zimmerman and The Man for All Seasons, and Best Original Screenplay, which he would win alongside his co-writer Pierre Utterhoven. Edith and Marcel would tell the story of the love affair between iconic French singer Edith Piaf and Marcel Cerdan, the French boxer who was the middleweight champion of the world during their affair in 1948 and 1949. Both were famous in their own right, but together they were the Brangelina of post-World War II France. Despite the fact that Cerdan was married with three kids, their affair helped lift the spirits of the French people until his death in October 1949 while he was flying from Paris to New York to see Piaf. Fans of Raging Bull are somewhat familiar with Marcel Cerdan already, as Cerdan's last fight before his death would find him losing the middleweight title to Jake LaMotta. In a weird twist of fate, Patrick DeWare, the actor Chabral had cast as Cerdan, committed suicide just after the start of production. And while Chabral considered shutting down the film in respect, it would be none other than Marcel Cerdan Jr. who would step into the role of his own father, despite never having acted before, and being six years older than his father when he died. When it was released in France in April of 1983, it was an immediate hit, becoming the second highest grossing French film of the year, and the sixth highest grosser of all films released in the country that year. However, it would not be the film France submitted for that year's Academy Award race. That would be Diane Curry's Entre Nous, which wasn't as big of a hit in France, but was considered a stronger contender for the nomination, in part because of Isabelle Huppert's amazing performance, but also because Entre Nous at 110 minutes was 50 minutes shorter than Edith and Marcel. Harvey Weinstein would cut 20 minutes out of the film without Chabral's consent or assistance, and when the film was released at the 57th Street Playhouse in New York City on Sunday, June 3rd, the gushing reviews in the New York Times ad would actually be for Chabral's original cut, and they would help the film gross $15,300 in its first five days. But once the other New York critics, who didn't get to see the original cut of the film, saw this new cut, the critical consensus started to fall. Things felt off to them, and they would be, as a number of short trims made by Weinstein would remove important context for the film for the sake of streamlining it. Audiences would pick up on the changes, and in the first full weekend of release, the film would only gross $12,000. After two more weeks of grosses under $4,000 each week, the film would close in New York City, and Edith and Marcel would never play in another theater in the United States. And then there would be another year-plus long gap before their next release, but we'll get into the reasons why in a few minutes. Many people today know Ruben Blades as Daniel Salazar in Fear the Walking Dead, or from his appearances in the Milagro Beanfield War, Once Upon a Time in Mexico, or Predator 2 amongst his 40-plus acting appearances over the years. But in the early 1980s, he was a salsa and Latin jazz musician and singer, who had yet to break out of the New Yorkan market. With an idea for a movie about a singer and musician not unlike himself trying to attempt a crossover success into mainstream music, he would approach his friend, 
director Leon Ikasho, about teaming up to get the idea fleshed out into a real movie. Although Blades was at best a cult music star and Ikasho had only made one movie before, they were able to raise $6 million from a series of local investors, including Jack Rollins, who produced every Woody Allen movie, from 1969's Take the Money and Run to 2015's Irrational Man, to make their movie, which they would start shooting in Spanish Harlem in December of 1982. And despite the luxury of a large budget for an independent Latino production, the shooting schedule was very tight, less than five weeks. There would be a number of large musical segments to show Blade's characters Rudy's talent as a musician and singer, with hundreds of extras on hand in each scene. Ikasho would stick to his 28-day schedule, and the film would wrap up shortly after the new year. Even though the director would have his final cut of the film ready by the start of summer 1983, it would take nearly a year and a half for any distributor to nibble. It wasn't that the film was tedious, quite the opposite. Many distributors enjoyed the film, but worried about, ironically, the ability of the film to cross over out of the Latino market and into the mainstream. So when Miramax came along with a lower-than-hoped-for offer to release the film, the filmmakers took the deal because they just wanted to get the film out there. Things would start to pick up for the film when Miramax submitted it to be entered into the 1985 Cannes Film Festival, and it would be selected to run in the prestigious Director's Fortnite program alongside Michael Newell's breakthrough film, Dance with a Stranger, Victor Nunez's breakthrough film, A Flash of Green, and Wayne Wang's breakthrough film, Dim Sum, A Little Bit of Heart. While they were waiting for Cannes to get back to them, they would also learn the film had been selected to be a part of the Lincoln Center's New Director's New Films program, where the film would earn raves from local critics and audiences, especially for Blades, who many felt was a screen natural. After more praise from critics and audiences on the French Riviera, Miramax would open Crossover Dreams at the Cinema Studios Theater in Midtown Manhattan on August 23, 1985. Originally booked into the smaller 180-seat auditorium, since John Huston's Pritzi's Honor was still doing good business in the 300-seat house in its fourth week, the theater would swap houses for the films when it became very clear early on Crossover Dreams' first day that it would be the more popular title that weekend, and it would. While Fritzy would still gross a solid $10,000 that weekend, Crossover Dreams would gross $35,000. In its second weekend, the film would again gross $35,000. And in its third weekend, another $35,000. They were basically selling out every seat at every show those first three weekends. Clearly, the film was indeed doing some crossover business. But, strangely... Miramax would wait seven weeks after opening the film in New York to open it in Los Angeles. With a new ad campaign that de-emphasized Blades and played up the dreamer-dreaming-big aspect of the film, Miramax would open the movie at two of the more upscale theaters in the area, the Cineplex Beverly Center on the outskirts of Beverly Hills and the Cineplex Brentwood Twin on the west side where many of Hollywood's tastemakers called home. And even with a plethora of good reviews from the local press, and playing at two theaters with more than double the capacity of the one theater playing the film in New York, Crossover Dreams could only manage a neat $13,000 opening weekend in Los Angeles. Slowly but surely, Merrimax would add a few more prints in additional major markets, 
But they never really gave the film the chance to score with Latino audiences who may have been craving a salsa-infused musical drama, even if it was entirely in English. Looking back 38 years later, that seems to have been a mistake. But it seems that the film's final gross of $250,000 after just 10 weeks of release was leaving a lot of money on the table. At awards time, Blades would be nominated for an Independent Spirit Award for Best Actor, but otherwise, the film would be shut out of any further consideration. But for all intents and purposes, the film did kind of complete its mission of turning Blades into a star. He continues to be one of the busiest Latino actors in Hollywood over the last 40 years, and it would help get one of his co-stars, Elizabeth Peña, a major job in a major Hollywood film the following year, as the live-in maid at Richard Dreyfuss and Bette Bedler's house in Palmazerski's Down and Out in Beverly Hills, which would give her a steady career until her passing in 2014. And Ikasho himself would have a successful directing career, both on movie screens and on television, working on such projects as Miami Vice, Prime Story, The Equalizer, Criminal Minds, and Queen of the South until his passing this past May. I'm going to briefly mention a Canadian drama called The Dog Who Stopped the War that Miramax released on three screens in their hometown of Buffalo on October 25, 1985. It's a family film about two groups of children in a small town in Quebec during their winter break who get involved in an ever-escalating snowball fight. It would become the highest-grossing local film in Canada in 1984, and it would become the first in a series of 25 family films under a Tales for All banner, made by a company called Party Productions, which will be releasing their newest film in the series later this year. The film may have been huge in Canada, but in Buffalo in the late fall of 1985, the film would only gross $15,000 in its first and only week in theaters. The film would eventually develop a cult following, thanks to repeated cable screenings during the holidays every year. We'll also give a brief mention to an Australian action movie called Cool Change, directed by George Miller. No, not the George Miller who created the Mad Max series, but the other Australian director named George Miller, who had to start going by George T. Miller to differentiate himself from the other George Miller, even though this George Miller was directing before the other George Miller, and even had a bigger local and global hit in 1982 with The Man from Snowy River, than the other George Miller had with Mad Max 2, also known as The Road Warrior. It would also be the second movie released by Miramax in a year, starring a young Australian ingenue named Deborah Lee Furness, who was also featured in Crossover Dreams. Today, most people know her as Mrs. Hugh Jackman. The internet and several book sources say the movie opened in America on March 14, 1986, but damn if I can find any playdate anywhere in the country, period. Not even in the Weinstein's home territory of Buffalo. A critic from the Sydney Morning Herald would call the film, which opened in Australia four weeks after it allegedly opened in America, a spectacularly simplistic propaganda piece for the cattle farmers of the Victorian High Plains, and in its home country, it would barely gross 2% of its $3.5 million budget. And sticking with brief mentions of Australian movies Miramax allegedly released in America in the spring of 1986, we move on to one of three movies directed by Brian Trenchard-Smith that would be released during the calendar year. In Australia, it was titled Frog Dreaming, but in America, the title was changed to The Quest. The film stars Henry Thomas from E.T., 
as an American boy who has moved to Australia, to be with his guardian after his parents die, and finds himself caught up in a magic of a local Aboriginal myth that might be more real than anyone realizes. And like Cool Change, I cannot find any American playdate for this film anywhere near its alleged May 1st, 1986 American release date. I even contacted Mr. Trenchard Smith, asking him if he remembers anything about the American release of his film, knowing full well it's 37 years later. And while being very polite in his response, he could only remember one play date at the three-screen Cineplex Fairfax in Los Angeles across the street from the CBS Television Center. But he doesn't remember exactly when the film played there. And newspaper clips from the time show that the theater was actually closed for renovations when it supposedly opened there. So, we may never know. Finally, we get back to the movies we can actually talk about with some certainty. I know our next movie was actually released in American theaters because I saw it in America, at a cinema. Twist and Shout told the story of two best friends, Bjorn and Eric, growing up in the suburbs of Copenhagen, Denmark in 1963. The music of the Beatles, who were just exploding in Europe at the time, helped provide a welcome respite from the harsh reality of their lives. Directed by Billy August, Twist and Shout would become the first of several August films to be released by Miramax over the next decade, which would end up becoming Miramax's first Oscar-winning release, but we'll be talking more about that movie on our next episode. August was often seen as a spiritual successor to Ingmar Bergman within Scandinavian cinema, so much so that Bergman would handpick August to direct a semi-autobiographical screenplay of his, The Best Intentions, in the early 1990s when it became clear to Bergman that he would not be able to make it himself. Bergman's only stipulation was that August would need to cast one of his actresses from Fanny and Alexander, Panera Walgren, as his stand-in character's mother. August and Walgren had never met until they started filming. By the end of shooting, Penella Walgren would become Penella August, but that's another story for another time. In a rare twist, Twist and Shout would open in Los Angeles before New York City, at the Cineplex Beverly Center on August 22, 1986, more than two years after it opened across Denmark. Loaded with accolades, including a Best Picture Award from the European Film Festival and positive reviews from the likes of Gene Siskel and Michael Wilmington, the movie would gross, according to Variety, a crisp $14,000 in its first three days. In its second weekend, the Beverly Center would add a second screen for the film, and the gross would increase to $17,000. And by week four, one of those prints at the Beverly Center would move over to the Lemley Monica 4, so those on the west side who didn't want to go east of the 405 could watch it. But the combined $13,000 gross would not be as good as the previous week's $14,000 from the two screens just at the Beverly Center. It wouldn't be until Twist and Shout's sixth week of release that they would finally add a screen in New York City at the 68th Street Playhouse, where it would gross $25,000 in its first weekend there. But after nine weeks, never playing in more than five theaters in any given weekend, Twist and Shout was down and out, with only $204,000 in ticket sales. But it was good enough for Miramax to acquire August's next movie, and actually get it into American theaters within a year of its release in Denmark and Sweden. Again, join us on our next episode for that story. Earlier I teased about why Miramax took more than a year off from releasing movies in 1984 and 1985, and... We've reached that point in the timeline to tell that story. 
After writing and producing The Burning in 1981, Bob and Harvey decided what they really wanted to do was to direct. But it would take years for them to come up with an idea and flesh that story out to a full-length screenplay. They would return to their roots as rock show promoters, borrowing heavily from one of Harvey's first forays into that field, when he and a partner, Corky Berger, purchased an aging movie theater in Buffalo in 1974 and turned it into a rock and roll hall for a few years, until they gutted and demolished the theater so that they could sell the land, with Harvey's half of the proceeds becoming much of the seed money to start Miramax up. In this story, after graduating high school, three best friends from New York City get the opportunity of a lifetime when one of them inherits an old run-down hotel upstate with dreams of turning it into a rock-and-roll hotel for young people. But when they get to the hotel, they realize the place is going to need a lot more work than they initially realized. And they realize they're not going to get any help from any of the locals who don't want them or their silly rock-and-roll hotel in their quaint and quiet town. With a budget of only $5 million and a story that would need to be filmed entirely on location, the cast would not include very many well-known actors. For the lead role of Danny, the young man who inherits the hotel, they would cast Daniel Giordano, whose previous acting work had been nameless characters in movies like Death Wish 3 and Streetwalkin'. This would be his first leading role. Danny's two best friends, Silk and Spikes, would be played by Leon W. Grant and Matthew Penn, respectively. Like Giordano, both Grant and Penn had also worked in small supporting roles, although Grant would actually play characters with actual names like Boo Boo and Choli. Penn, the son of Bonnie and Clyde director Arthur Penn, would ironically have his first acting role in a 1983 musical called Rock and Roll Hotel about a young trio of musicians who enter a battle of the bands at an old hotel called the Rock and Roll Hotel. This would also be their first leading roles. Today, there are two reasons to watch Playing for Keeps. One of them is to see just how truly awful Bob and Harvey Weinstein were as directors. 80% of the film is master shots without any kind of coverage. 15% is wannabe MTV music video, if the videos were directed by space aliens handed video cameras and not told what to do with them. And the last 5% is Giordano mimicking Kevin Bacon in Footless, but with the heaviest New York accent this side of Bensonhurst. The other reason to watch is a young actress in her first major screen role, who is still mesmerizing and hypnotic despite the crap fest she is surrounded by. 19-year-old Mirsa Tomei wouldn't become a star because of this movie, but it was clear very early on that she was going to become one someday. Mostly shot in and around the grounds of the Bethany Colony Resort in Bethany, Pennsylvania, the film would spend six weeks in production during June and July of 1984 and the Weinsteins would spend more than a year and a half putting the film together. As music men, they knew that a movie about a rock and roll hotel for younger people would need to have a lot of hip, cool, teen-friendly music on the soundtrack. So naturally, the Weinsteins would recruit such hip, cool, teen-friendly musicians like Pete Townsend of The Who, Bill Collins, Peter Frampton, Sister Sledge, the already defunct Duran Duran side project Arcadia, and Hinton Battle, who had originated the role of the Scarecrow in the Broadway production of The Wiz. The Weinsteins would spend nearly half a million dollars to acquire B-sides and tossed away songs that weren't good enough to appear on the artist's regular albums. 
and once again, light on money, Miramax would send a completed film out to major studios to see if they'd be willing to release the film. A sale would bring some much-needed capital back into the company immediately, and creating a working relationship with a major studio could be advantageous in the long run. Universal Pictures would buy the movie from Miramax for an undisclosed sum, and they would set an October 3rd, 1986 release date. Playing for Keeps would open on 1,148 screens that day, including 56 screens in the greater Los Angeles metro region and 80 in the New York City metropolitan area. But it wasn't the best week to open this film. Crocodile Dundee had opened the week before and was a surprise hit, spending a second week firmly atop the box office charts with $8.2 million in ticket sales. Its nearest competitor, the Burt Lancaster Kirk Douglas comedy Tough Guys, would be the week's highest-grossing new film with $4.6 million. Number three was Top Gun, earning $2.405 million in its 21st week in theaters. And Stand By Me was in fourth in its ninth week with $2.396 million. In fifth place, playing in only 215 theaters would be another new opener, Children of a Lesser God, with $1.9 million. And all the way down in sixth place with only $1.4 million in ticket sales was Playing for Keeps. The reviews were fairly brutal, and by that I mean they were fair in their brutality. Although you'd have to do some work to find those reviews today. No one has ever bothered to link their reviews for playing for keeps at Rotten Tomatoes and Metacritic. And after a second weekend where the film would lose a quarter of its screens and 61% of its opening weekend business, Universal would cut its losses and dump the film into dollar houses. The final reported box office gross on the film was only two million. Bob Weinstein would never write or direct another film, and Harvey Weinstein would only have one other directing credit to his name, an animated movie called The Gnome's Great Adventure, which wasn't really a directing effort so much as his buying the American rights to a 1985 Spanish animated television series called The World of David the Gnome, creating new English-language dubs with actors like Tom Bosley, Frank Gorshin, Christopher Plummer, and Tony Randall, and then selling the new versions of the show to Nickelodeon. Sadly, we would learn in October 2017 that one of the earliest known episodes of sexual harassment by Harvey Weinstein happened during the pre-production of Playing for Keeps. In 1984, a 20-year-old college junior, Tommy Ann Roberts, was waiting tables in New York City hoping to start an acting career. Weinstein, who was one of her customers at this restaurant, urged Miss Roberts to audition for a movie that he and his brother were planning to direct. Weinstein would send her the script and asked her to meet him where he was staying so that they could discuss the film. When she arrived at his hotel room, the door was left slightly ajar, and he called on her to come in and close the door behind her. She would find Weinstein nude in the bathtub, where he told her she would give a much better audition if she were comfortable getting naked in front of him too, because the character she might play would have a topless scene. If she could not bear her breasts in private, she would not be able to do it on film. Miss Roberts was so horrified, she rushed out of the room after telling Weinstein that she was too prudish to go along. She felt he manipulated her by feigning professional interest in her and doubted she'd ever been under serious consideration. And that incident would send her life in a different direction. In 2017, Roberts was a psychology professor at Colorado College 
researching sexual objectification and interest she traces back in part to that long-ago encounter. And on that sad note, we're going to take our leave this week. Thank you for joining us. We'll talk again soon when we continue with the story of Miramax Films from 1987. Remember to visit this episode's page on our website, The 80s Movie Podcast, for extra materials about the movies we covered on this episode. The 80s Movie Podcast has been researched, written, narrated, and edited by Edward Havens for idiosyncratic entertainment. Thank you again. Good night. (laughs) 